with that being said, I want to jump right into the teaching this morning. So hopefully you guys have your Bibles open to the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 2 is where we're at today. Uh, we've been in a series just going through this book. It's taking us way longer than what maybe you had expected or maybe even myself had expected. Um, but we're just kind of making our way through this. We're not really in a rush. Uh, the big idea is we're just looking at it bit by bit, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, in some cases word by word, phrase by phrase, just trying to capture the essence of what this incredible book is really all about. In short, it's about uh, the, uh, a letter written to a community of followers of Jesus that were scattered throughout the ancient Roman world. And these were people that were trying to live faithful lives to Jesus. And yet, at the same time, they found that to be a challenge because there was pushback from the culture at large. And the pushback was challenging them to either go soft on their commitment to Jesus, to kind of become maybe spineless or toothless, um, or to basically assimilate, become like the culture around them. Um, and so in a lot of ways, what we've been saying all along, there's a lot of practical challenges for us as followers of Jesus as we look at this. Um, because in a lot of ways, we live in a culture that's not necessarily welcoming and loving and embracing of Christianity or Christian values. In a lot of ways, it's growing even more hostile. And again, without trying to, you know, self-make ourselves martyrs, because that's, that's not healthy either. But the fact of the matter is, is, is how do we, as followers of Jesus, live faithful lives to Jesus right now in our culture? Knowing that there's not like a red carpet that's rolled out. Say, hey, tell us everything there is to be learned about Jesus. Um, in some ways, it might be even more hostile towards us in that respect. But the question is, how do we, how do we live in such a way where we don't uh, forsake? We don't walk away from Jesus or uh, assimilate or become like the culture around us? How do we remain faithful to God in the midst of this? That's kind of what this whole lesson is all about. To bring it up to speed as to where we're at right now, we've been looking at chapter two. One of the things that we described uh, several weeks ago is that Peter is inviting the followers of Jesus to live in a very particular way. And this is what gets really unique about what he's going to introduce to us. Is If you think of it this way, uh, I kind of presented the situation last week. So imagine, here you are, a, fall, a community of followers of Jesus, and yet you have a community that's kind of hostile towards you. And here you have leaders that um, are, are writing to you or speaking to you. The question is, what type of information would you want those leaders to tell you? Or how would you want them to instruct you or to inform you? So in other words, here you are as a follower of Jesus living in a culture, and maybe you lost your job, or maybe you got blackballed from the community or canceled, to use our modern uh, language, uh, from the, uh, the, uh, the marketplace. So you're no longer able to you know, open up your pop-up shop and sell your beets or your you know, leather goods, whatever it is that you're creating as a first century you know, guildsman or whatever it is that you do. Because of your faithfulness to Jesus, you've been blackballed. Um, the question is, what type of instruction do you want to hear from your leaders? I think for many of us, what we want to hear is, you know, take out your gun, load it, and get ready to go down and rumble. Because anybody that mistreats you, you stand on your rights and you fire back. Or we fight tooth for tooth, eye for eye. Like, how do we think about retaliation, vindication? What does that look like for us? There has to be a response. We can't just like go into the world with no response. I don't think Peter's, maybe for some people, they're like, Peter, they're waiting for Peter to give a, an instruction. Go run for the forest. Go leave everything behind. Go create, a, you know, some sort of enclave somewhere, you know, some underground, you know, enclave where you have secret codes and you, you know, store food for some future apocalypse. But 
Again, that's not what Peter says either. What Peter says is so unique and so, I would even say, revolutionary. He says, guys, as followers of Jesus who are living in a place of intensity, persecution, treat others with goodness. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? Treat others with goodness. Show kindness to others. And, and, and Peter's not whipping this out of nowhere. He's not just like a moralist is what he's doing. What he's doing is he's looking at Jesus constantly throughout the entire authorship of his inspired book. And he's basically saying, this is what Jesus did. When Jesus was attacked, he laid down his life and he loved those that were attacking him. He did good to those who did evil. So the question is, again, how that gets played out is not necessarily every little detail that I'm going to lay out for you. Because, again, each of our lives have different circumstances that we go through, which requires different ways of reacting. But I think the, the, the truth, the kernel, is the same in every con, uh, context. The idea of goodness. How do we act with goodness? And what I've been describing this uh, series of teachings in this little section in the book of Peter is a revolution of goodness. And so we're in this place of uh, looking at how do we live this out. So with that being said, I want to just read First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, if you've been with us, this is kind of like uh, rehearsal. We've been reading this over and over again. But again, the big idea, maybe this is an opportunity for you to memorize this, to think about it, to meditate deeply upon this in a biblical sense, uh, committed to memory. Um, but I want to read this, uh, and then we can just jump right in, begin to look at the teaching. So, verse 13 says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And this is the word of the Lord. I want to pray again, and then we'll just jump right in. Jesus, again, we, we come to you, God. We, what we just read, these are my opinions. These are sacred texts. And God, for some of us, this, this is not the wisdom that we want. But we know it's the wisdom we need. And so God, as followers of Jesus, uh, we bring to you not only our past challenges, our hurts, our pains, our trauma, our difficulties, uh, the injustices that we carry. Uh, we also bring, God, baggage uh, that we have learned about you that is maybe misinformation. Maybe it's just caricature. And God, whatever misinformation, whatever false ideas or false ideologies or theological concepts or constructs, God, we just lay those at your feet. And we ask you, Jesus, right now, would you remake, reform us according to your image, according to your likeness, by your word and through the Holy Spirit's power. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. What I want to do is I want to just jump back in. So next slide is we'll take a look at um, the framework that we've been looking at. So, again, the idea of goodness. You can think this as creating a culture of goodness. Um, 
I like to think of it as a revolution of goodness. Again, typically when you think of revolution, you think of a hostile or a violent or a bloody revolution. That's not what this is. This is a a revolution, not a bloodshed, but a revolution of goodness. It's radically different. Again, I'm not making this up. This is not my words. If you got a problem with this, you got a problem with Peter, and you got to take it up with with Jesus ultimately. That's that's, that's my convenient way of sidestepping any darts, right? But the point of the matter is this is what Peter is saying. And he gets this from Jesus, who ultimately this is from the Holy Spirit, God-breathed text. So he's putting this in the larger framework in terms of our horizontal relationship. So what our vertical relationship is to God, we are sons and daughters. We are a holy priesthood, the way he described in earlier passages. Um, and on a horizontal level, he's saying that you guys are foreigners and exiles. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. And today, as well as next week, we're looking at the idea of being a citizen within the larger framework of Roman Empire. Um, same way that, you know, for the most part, I would assume that all of us here are, are American citizens, or at least we reside currently in America. So the question is, how do we live in a society or culture like America, which probably and arguably might be a little bit better than Rome, but nonetheless share similar traits? I mean, it is, in a sense, kind of like a Babylon that has an empire mindset that wants to expand. That's really, at the end of the day, is not interested in saying, hey, how do we follow the way of Jesus in every aspect of life and society? And then ultimately, we'll take a look at the idea of uh, being part of this revolution of good in the construct of servants. Uh, again, we'll get to that when we get to that. So with that, I want to just jump right in. And we've been looking at a handful, next slide, a handful of ways in which this kind of plays out. Six to be exact. So uh, just very, very fast recap. If you guys were not here last week, I recommend just go to our website or downloading our podcast, listening to it. It was the subject of uh, one of the ways in which goodness looks like in this horizontal relationship to being a citizen is this idea of subject, subjection to every human institution. But again, the real big important aspect is unto the Lord. In other words, the big idea is not like we don't submit to Rome or Caesar or America or whatever because it's supreme. We submit to Jesus as supreme. Again, like I mentioned last week, that when there are occasions where Caesar or other leaders that might set themselves up contradict what Scripture teaches, then there are those moments where we, we back away and we say we submit to Jesus beyond and above. But again, I'm not going to go into the teaching. You can just check that out from last week. What I want to do right now is I'm going to take a look at the next one, which is number two on this, which is taking sin seriously. And this is where we kind of begin to move into the broader aspect of the text, and this is what I want to look at right now is this idea of taking sin seriously. And again, take a look at the text. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13b to verse 14 says this, whether it is to the emperor supreme, in other words, he's using the word subjugation or subject or to give yourself or the way of, of obeying as uh, citizens, um, he then goes on to say to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And uh, one of the big ideas that I think it's important to identify is that according to scripture, the, the reason for governmental heads or government period is twofold number one to punish evil and then to promote good to punish evil to promote good it's what peter says right here punish evil promote good and what what i want first to think about as followers of jesus um and what how, how do we do that how do we live promoting good how do we do that now the thing i think is important obviously i think we can all agree that government cannot legislate virtue they cannot pass a law that says everybody go out and be a good human being i mean they can have laws to say if you're not going to be a good human being here's what it looks like to have to pay to society or whatever it is for not being a good human being but the big concept that i want first to think about is that how does true 
goodness get generated within the heart of a human being. And I would argue this is where the gospel comes in. Jesus shapes and, re- and changes our hearts so that by internally makes us brand new people. So we become a part of this movement of goodness that God began. But one of the ways in which we do that is by taking sin seriously. If government takes, you know, they're not going to necessarily use the word sin, but they take rebellion, human rebellion or human brokenness. And again, there are laws, of course, that are for the promotion of good and for the punishment of evil in our culture that a lot of those things we can look at, we can put our thumb up and say, we agree with that. That's good. That's good that it suppresses injustices. Now, again, I think like any culture, any civilization, we always have a long ways to go. There's always new ways of looking at things. And again, even in a secular culture and society, things are constantly shifting and shaping. But the point of the matter is, is that when you think about this idea, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, who's a part of this revolution of goodness that God started, is called by God to do good, to live out good. So how do we do that? How do we do that? I think one of the key ways is by taking sin seriously. Taking sin seriously. Now, in order to do this well, I think um, what I want to do is I want to try to give at least a little bit of a definition as to what sin is. Because I realize, for many of us, we might have differing ways in which we would identify what sin is. I want to read a quick quote from a guy by the name of David Wells. He wrote a book uh, back in the mid-90s, actually, um, called Losing Our Virtue. Which, again, if you're familiar at all with the construct of when the 90s was, this is at a moment where a lot of evangelicals were rising to some degree of prominence. Megachurches were spreading all over the place. There was some degree of incredible uh, recognition of evangelicalism in America. And as a result of that, there was the formation of what was called the evangelical right or the moral majority, if you're familiar with those phrases like that. Uh, Christianity, in a lot of ways, was commingling. Um, in a lot, I would even argue, maybe in some cases, being co-opted by uh, political powers. And so this guy wrote a book basically trying to address the importance of never, never drifting away from our theological moorings of who God is. And unless, uh, or, or if we do lose sight of who God is and our theology begins to become watered down, um, our, moral, our morality will ultimately end up going the same direction. Um, again, it's a really fascinating book to read, to see in so many ways how the things that he's talking about, you know, 20 some odd years ago are actually literally playing out to, in today's culture right now. But I want to, he has a really good job at defining what sin is. I want to read this passage to you real quick. He says, if sin is defined as it is in the Bible, three things, if you want to write these down, these are really important to just take a mental note of. Number one is missing the mark, abandoning the path, and defying authority. Then he goes on to describe that the missed mark, the path abandoned, and the authority that's defied are from first and last God's. In other words, it's God's path, God's mark, God's authority. It's it's important to understand. Then he goes on to say, sin is defying God disobeying his law, rejecting his word, and refusing his Christ. Yet in America today, uh, 17% of people understand sin is in relation to God. So it's a very small uh, minority of people. And again, this is 25 some odd years ago. And I would imagine this percentage has probably dropped quite a bit. So he says, yet in America today, only 70% of people understand sin is in relation to God. What in the Bible makes sin to be sin has disappeared for the great majority of Americans. And the consequence is the massive trivialization of our moral life. This happens because moral offenses against God are reduced simply to bad feelings about ourselves. I think, it's, I think if you were to take a secular definition as to what is sin in our culture today, they would just say, oh, feeling bad about myself. Well, then what's salvation? What's salvation to this quote-unquote sin problem? Salvation is 
discovering your true self and living into your true self as much and as best as you can. And that combats the badness that you feel about yourself. Is that, is that accurate? Would you agree with that? If you, if you disagree with that, I'd be happy to talk with you. We can talk about that later. But the point that I want to make is this, and I'd be happy to have dialogue about this. But the, the fact is, is that what he's describing is this concept of sin is actually deeply rooted in Scripture, but it's deeply connected to God. Because the pathway that we miss or abandon is God's pathway. The mark that we are not hitting is God's mark. And it's important for us to think about this. Because if we don't take sin seriously, here's the big E on the chart. If we don't take sin seriously, we're left to simply defining what badness is or sin is in our culture, and that's it. On our own whims and feelings and emotions. In other words, you have no standard for rights truly right and what's truly wrong you're left with a menu of options and at some point you get into a big street brawl as to who's right who's morally superior who's morally inferior and then at the end you just have a bloody civil war and nobody actually actually ever wins but what scripture is teaching us is that there's a way for us i think to think about how to deal with sin rightly and i think we are to take it Seriously. So what I want to do real quick, and I'm just go through three major battlefields that I think about that are really significant and important in terms of our cultural moment. These are three major areas I would say that uh, are consistently, constantly being under attack in terms of how we think about sin in these contexts. Number one is the idea of human life. And what I want for us to think about with regard to this is ultimately when human life is removed from the concept of God then it simply reduces nothing more than biological mutations and reactions and feelings and emotions or thoughts. And that's all. But then that ultimately leads on its ultimate end to a dehumanization. Where, again, like I said, whoever's got the biggest guns or the greatest street smarts is the one that actually wins the day. And there's no ultimate general standard or standard throughout that says that human life is actually important. So as followers of Jesus, we want to take life in all of its ways seriously that it's ultimately undermined reduced marginalized all the way from children that are unborn to immigrant children that have been removed from moms and dads and our guardians and are deeply traumatized at our border towns all the way to maybe youth preteens all the way through people that are within their 20s that are drowning in depression and anxiety and meaninglessness due to screen addictions maybe even bullying leading to suicidal actions because we believe that death is exactly the end that the enemy of our soul desires. Death is not from God. It's a form of sin that God wants to combat and replace with goodness and life. But life, human life, is important. It's sacred. It's something that God blesses, that God says is good. And at the same time, similarly, we grieve the sins when other human beings get marginalized or canceled, even due to religious beliefs. And I would even add, any and all religious beliefs, Christians in particular, should never, ever contribute to the marginalization or the oppression of some other human being, even if they share or they worship a false god or a different god. That might sound like shock to some of you, but the fact of the matter is, even Jesus interacting with the woman at Samaria who worshiped a different form and a different God, Jesus treated her with incredible humanization and kindness. You might even say goodness. Christians 
need to recognize the importance of doing good, even to those simply because they share in this life that God has given to them. Now, again, I think if we do that well, we show kindness and love and generosity and goodness to people. It creates opportunities and relationship that helps lead to opportunities to talk about Jesus and ultimately, hopefully, leads people to come to know the same faith in Christ that we might ourselves share. Secondly, I like to think of the big area of battlefield or battleground with regard to sexuality and or i might even describe sexual distortions or sexual identity and we celebrate the uniqueness of how god created human beings male and female in all of its complex beauty and yet at the same time simultaneously we grieve the havoc the confusion the shame that's oftentimes come to define so many people in those distortions over sexual identity oftentimes even believing that maybe god messed up or God made a mistake by placing someone in a wrong body. This is not popular. This is not popular by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, I think the important thing is to realize that God has a plan and a purpose for which and how he created human beings. And the menu of options that are available on the table today, I truly believe, are leading to radical confusion and exhaustion in the lives of so many people. But I also would say that I think it's equally important for us to recognize that when people that are living within the framework of the culture and have imbibed the cultural narrative and have at the same time consumed the confusion that has come along with it, for Christians to mistreat, marginalize, or demean anybody that's in a state of working through their own sexuality and to, to make them feel as if they are not welcomed, dehumanize them. That's equally offensive to God as well. God hates that because he loves those people. He loves all people. Just as we saw point one, human life. It's all human life. Jesus has a way. But that means that we, it doesn't mean that we pull away from the definitions or how God has breathed life and meaning and purpose into human dignity and value and the maleness and femaleness of human beings. But at the same time, nor do we mistreat or malign other people in that same context as well. We take seriously and we grieve those ways in which some Christians, in some cases, have, as I mentioned, mistreated, demoralized, or dehumanized. And if that's you, if that's you, if you have been in that status at all and you have dealt with confusion that our culture is consistent and you found yourself wondering, maybe even having that question, did God make a mistake? And other Christians in your life have made you feel broken, even more broken than you are. I want to say to you as a pastor, I am so sorry. That is not the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus is to welcome and love you and to help bring you to wholeness and life by coming to him first and foremost. And then he takes care of every other aspect of our life. And trust me, every other aspect of our life, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, is every aspect of our life comes under the lordship of Jesus, where we are asking the bigger question, not what do I feel that makes me fullness and alive, but what does Jesus say about me that I need to receive and incorporate in my life and live according to by faith? Now, by feeling by faith, God, I receive that. That's what you say about me, and I will do my best to live into that, to find a community of people that will support me and love me in this journey, in this process, in this adventure. 
And then lastly, I want to talk real briefly about the battleground of ethnicity. And I think, again, within the past year, several years, this has been a big hot topic in America. But I would also say that all humans bear the image of God in all of its colorful diversity. Every nation, tribe, and tongue is going to be represented around the throne of Jesus. And all hate and sins, be it racism, ethnocentricity, discrimination, prejudice, all of these are egregious actions against God. So, for example, when John says, you who claim to love God yet hate your brother, you lie. You don't get it. This is gnarly stuff, ma'am. But again, it's not my opinion. This is what Jesus says. As followers of Jesus, we submit to his lordship. And any areas that are out of whack or out of order or out of alignment with his kingdom we are welcome to realign with his ways. And I realize this is a lot of ways this is a selective list uh, that I kind of picked. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. But we do not celebrate or make excuses for boastfulness or arrogance or pride or sexual exploits or any form of misogyny or any form of suppression or oppression of other human beings made in God's image. Those are all sins that we have to take Seriously, because they all miss the mark, miss the path that God has. And the big idea that I think for this, next slide. Big idea is that faithfulness to Jesus ultimately looks like goodness portrayed by identifying, repenting from, resisting, and exposing sinful actions that distort and destroy the image of God. Lastly. I want to take a look at this idea of goodness looks like acting on the freedom that God gives us to do good. All right. First uh, Peter chapter two, verse 15 just simply says this for this is the will of God. I love this because a lot of us are kind of in places and states of life. where We're just like, man, what's God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? Like most of the time, what we're looking for is like this catered menu of like, who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to have? Or where am I supposed to live? And we're looking for this special catered, you know, you know, categorized list of, okay, fall that way. But by the way, if you've ever read the Bible, you're like, I'm looking for my spouse in the Bible. You're not going to find it. I'll just be straight up tell you, you can, you don't be searching around for that. I mean, maybe, maybe under some crazy extreme circumstances, you might like, you know, play popcorn and find a verse and says, you know, and he went out and married Sarah. And just that might so happen to be that your spouse might be named Sarah. And he's like, whatever, we get the idea. But the point of the matter is the big idea behind the scripture is to point us to the will of God. God's larger aims. In this context, again, he reminds us, he recalibrates. In case you're wondering, what is God's will? This is the will of God that by doing good, let me just pause right there, by doing good. He goes on, he's got more stuff to say, but by doing good. So what we know so far is that God's will. So you might be like, well, I'm a Christian and I do bad. Well, you're not doing what God's will is. I'm a Christian, but I'm constantly trolling everybody on social media. Well, you're not doing good. You got some work to do. Well, I'm a Christian, but I'm constantly just getting in arguments over every aspect of theology. Well, you're not doing good. Good luck, good job, but you got some work to do. The point of the matter is, again, it's a revolution of goodness. We all have work to do, obviously, in these areas. But the fact of the matter is he goes back and says, by doing good, you should put the silence to ignorance of foolish people. 
Don't get stumbled by that. The idea is people that are ignorant. And, and, and again, we, we use the word ignorant in such a derogatory term. You're ignorant, bro. Like, but the idea is they're just unfamiliar with the ways of God. They're just unfamiliar with the ways of God. So he's saying to those that are unfamiliar with the ways of Jesus, when they look at your life, they'll be able to have a full-on, like, maybe not a full book, but a magazine, right? A periodical, a trailer. They can look at you in the goodness of your life and say, Man, there's something about them that's, that's kind of amazing. I don't get them. I don't, they don't make sense to me. They do weird stuff that I can't simply understand. Their sexuality is different. Their morals are different. The way they live is different. The way they talk is different. The way they even drink is different. All these things that they do is different. And that they see your goodness and your actions and your goodness. And they realize there's something different about that person's life. And then he goes and says, verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Which brings me to a definition of freedom. Again, we just celebrated 4th of July last week. And a lot of us have the, uh, I would actually say, a false understanding of what freedom is. We think of freedom is to do whatever the heck we want to do. If that's your idea of freedom, it needs some upgrading. Because, I mean, I would just put it this way. If you're, if, if, you're, if you're not a follower of Jesus, that's fine. That's kind of the normal standard way of thinking about it. Just freedom. Do what I want to do. As a follower of Jesus, I would say it's a little bit different. Because it's rooted in a story. In fact, the idea of freedom traces all the way back to a freedom story called the Passover. Where God sets the people free, uh, free from a slave and then for a purpose of following him. So I like to think of it this way. Deliverance from vice or enslaving proclivities, sin or forces. So forces you can think maybe like a large empire like Pharaoh. It sets them free from these exterior or even internal vices for the purpose of doing good. That's what freedom is. So what he's suggesting here is that this is the will of God. What does God want? It's God's will. Do good. Be part of this revolution. And lastly, I want to finish with this. Because for some of us, if all we simply do is we take this idea of like, oh, Pastor Brian said, do good. Because that's what Peter said. And you walk out of here and you try really hard. I'm going to do good. One of two things will either happen. One, you will either get out of here and try to do good. And you will fail immediately because you'll cut someone off. Or they'll cut you off while you're driving back. And they'll give you a gesture that might make you really angry. And you lose your temper. And you maybe give them a gesture back that might not be good. Or you might go back to your ways of trolling people on social media, which is not good. And then you will feel this weight of failure. And you'll feel really bad. You'll feel guilt and shame. Or you will deceive yourself into thinking, I'm really good. Because look at what I've done. I've done this, and I've done that, and I've given money away here, and I bought a burrito for the old homeless guy sitting on a street corner, and I've done all these kind actions of good. And I posted the black square on social media. So I'm really good. I have virtue. Now you look at other people with disdain because they haven't done those things. Now you got arrogance. God despises the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And it's only through an understanding of the gospel that reformats everything. So let me tell you what I mean. Uh, Book of Acts chapter 10, verse 34. In fact, I'll have Mike come on up and he'll lead lead us in a closing song. We'll wrap this up. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 34. I'm just going to read the verse 38. This is when Peter stands before a guy by the name of Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier and he is open to receiving the good news of Jesus. The good news. <laughs> good news of Jesus. And then Peter says, you know, you guys, have, you've heard about Jesus. 
and what John had done, how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good, healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And this brings us back full circle to the really, the, the essence of good news. The good news is that none of us, none of us deserve to have had goodness done to us by God. But that's the basis of it. We're really broken people. All of us, like Scripture says, we've sinned. In other words, we've missed the pathway. We've tried to emancipate ourselves from God. We have brought upon ourselves and have been open to consuming definitions that distort God's ways and purposes. And all of us, we're all guilty of this, but God has showered goodness upon us. Jesus came. He loved us. He did good. And to the degree, I would suggest that you see the good that was done to you, for you, in spite of you, that changes everything. It changes the way that you see God. It changes the way that you see your neighbor, including your enemy. And it frees you. It frees you from those compulsions, those instincts to level vindication or bloodshed or evil upon those who have hurt you or wounded. It frees you to forgive. It frees you to love even the unlovely. That, by definition, is good. It's goodness. So, how about we all stand? I'm going to close in prayer. Michael, just play a chorus, and we will close out by partaking of communion together. We have some communion elements in the front, in the back. Um, Feel free, if you would like, to go to one of those stations, grab the communion, and as soon as we're done with the chorus, we will partake of communion together. It's a reminder that all of us in Jesus are welcome to this table, no matter how broken, dirty, messed up, defiled we are, to receive the grace that we so eagerly and desperately need. So, Jesus, thank you for your incredible love. And we submit fresh to you. And God, if there's anybody here right now that just senses the ache in their soul, the confusion, the anxiety, the pain, the exhaustion. God, I pray right now that they would know and sense your presence that's here. You said, come unto you, all you who are burdened and heavy laden and struggling to find hope and help in you. 